I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, March 8th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, progress is made restoring water to Jackson residents. But the symptoms of an old and crumbling infrastructure remain. Then, state faith leaders send a unified message of support for Medicaid expansion. Plus, a coalition of health advocates press the legislature for a higher cigarette tax. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. An estimated 5,000 residents in Jackson have not had running water since the winter storm last month. City officials say there's work to be done, but an end could be near. The saga has brought the deteriorating condition of Capital City's infrastructure to the national stage. The city has requested assistance from the state legislature to fund major repairs to aging water systems. Major Shokwe, uh, Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba says the price tag to modernize all of the city's major infrastructure could top $2 billion. My uh, clarification of $2 billion is an overall infrastructure challenge, not just water. Water, uh, drainage, uh, uh, storm water, sewage, uh, uh, wastewater, uh, roads and bridges, those are the issues that, that we have comprehensively. And that was to illustrate if Jackson has a $2 billion problem, then imagine how much our nation is crumbling and, and the need for a federal package. Uh, but to the extent that, that we offered, we asked for state support, I thought it was important that we, we put in writing our requests uh, so that they know that, that Jackson's problems is the state of Mississippi's problems. If Jackson has issue, if Jackson businesses has is, have issue, then ultimately it will affect the state. Uh, and so that's why we need them to dig in and we need operational unity so that they understand that we can focus more on our common ends and objectives than our differences. Uh, it pains me when I see residents uh, with poor infrastructure that leads them in this type of condition, and it's time that we do something. Uh, and so, you know, I've had the opportunity to talk with state leaders uh, recently, and hopefully uh, I'm optimistic that maybe we can get the ball moving. 
The problems are systemic of an old and crumbling infrastructure. With a city that has grown geographically over the last half century while shrinking demographically, the tax base to address a cascade of issues has been absent. Jordan Ray Tillman is director of city planning for Jackson. She shares more with Shalina Chatlani of the Gulf States Newsroom. We are an older city that has experienced a ton of population loss in the past, really since the 1980s, and even pre-1980s, from about 1950 on, we were expanding through annexation to capture in additional populations that had previously moved outside the city limits and developed. So since 1980, we've lost 40,000 residents. Um, we went from a city that in 1950 was 27 square miles to a city that today sits at 113 square miles. So it's really a function of mass. Um, you can talk about why we lost population. There's definitely a conversation in there with white flight, the timing of it early um, happening, but it, it has continued through that period of time going forward. And that every, every resident lost, every business lost is a taxpayer and a water user. So you struggled with generating sufficient revenue for a long period of time, well beyond just the past 10 years, that would be sufficient for the amount of money needed to really invest in both water plants and sewer plants and the actual pipe infrastructure. Um, Every administration, looking back, has made attempts to do it but never had the amount of money really needed. So if you compound those factors, you can't borrow enough money to overcome this as the city of Jackson. Um, it is definitely a story, just like many other cities in this country, of we are, are, are patching, we're doing improvements. We've spent many, many millions of dollars over the years making improvements, but it's just a drop in the bucket to what is actually needed to do the full-scale um, version of what, what's required. That economic argument makes sense to me, but, you know, Jackson is a predominantly black city. I believe it's 80% black, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, this issue of white flight and there being a smaller tax base and not enough money coming in, why hasn't the city taken it upon itself to step in to help, you know, an underserved community get back on its feet? You know, we're not just talking about the water crisis. We're talking about broadly the city of Jackson, poor black communities. I mean, the city is, you just described the city. The city is, as a whole, an underserved community, and it's been fighting for itself for decades. Um, I would I would not argue the city hasn't attempted to solve its own problems. Um, we've had our challenges, but the city has been disinvested in for years. Um, you can you can look back through the 1950s. There's very specific things that happened um, that that have led to this disinvestment. It, it, it's a it's a challenge that's just it was created through generational systemic issues. So we're not going to come out of it quickly. Every administration that I can think back came up with an idea of how they were going to do this, and then did not succeed in finding the funding. You can look at what we're capable of bringing in, and you can look at our challenges, and then you can multiply that out, and it just does not equal what it would take to fix the system. 
Jordan Ray Tillman is director of city planning for Jackson. Over the weekend, community leaders gathered to assist hard-hit city residents with bottled water and food. Julian D. Miller is founding director of Ruben V. Anderson Center for Justice. He tells our Kobe Vance the challenges of the city's water system are part of a larger system of economic injustice. We're focused on economic justice. Uh, we, uh, part of our volunteers are here is the Two Black Growth Initiative that's working to build sustainable food systems to address both food insecurity as well as economic justice. And so, you know, with the with the advent of this crisis, these problems were systemic and structural, not just with the water crisis, but also with uh, 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 economic disparities. And so, it's essentially been exacerbated by this COVID crisis and now this subsequent water crisis. So, we want to be on the front lines and addressing this in the short term with our wonderful partners at GJAC, among our other our multi-sectoral partners, to provide both food boxes and fresh food and vegetables and the water, but we also want to use this as a catalyst long-term to be thinking about how we leverage resources to build a sustainable uh, uh, economy that ultimately would provide people with uh, decent living wages to be able to, you know, feed themselves, to be able to, uh, uh, to, be able to feed themselves and when, you know, things like this happen, but also to create the revenue necessary to deal with infrastructure problems, our long-standing infrastructure problems, so uh, we can uh, uh, address these issues at a systemic level. Now, I'm curious, uh Going off of that, how is this a bouncing point for those to be able to meet, start those goals? Well, we would hope, like, uh, with, with what we're doing, like I said, particularly with the uh, Tugelak Growth Nations, we're building a sustainable food system on Tugelak's campus, and the goal of it is to ultimately be worker-owned. And so our hope is with, like, any, you know, when anytime you have an economic crisis, right, people wake up, you know, they come out, they volunteer, they work together, but they also build synergy to think about how do we solve these problems, address these problems long-term? How do we partner government and business and the nonprofit sector and the community to deal with these problems at a systemic level and address them? And we've already sort of done this work in what uh, Great Jackson Arts Council is doing on the ground with Jackson Youth, among other initiatives, what we're doing with the Anderson Center, not just the areas of economic justice, but also criminal justice, public health equity, and educational equity. Uh, we believe that we, you know, we we're, we're building uh, that synergy, building those partnerships, and you know, hope to uh, uh, develop more things to come. To address this long term. Coming up, state faith leaders send a unified message of support for Medicaid expansion. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11, or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Faith leaders in Mississippi are planning to deliver a letter to the governor and state legislators today urging them to expand Medicaid. Ministers with Working Together Mississippi say they have more than 300 signatures and are seeking more. The ministers say there are about 300,000 working poor in Mississippi who don't have access to health care. The Mississippi Hospital Association has offered a plan to pay the state's portion, but it hasn't gained any traction. Bishop Brian Sage is with the Episcopal Diocese of Mississippi. He tells our Desiree Frazier access to health care is a moral issue. What we really want to do is uh, come together and exert some some influence as as people of faith um, and and just make our voices heard uh, about the importance of expanding health care and, and really reaching out to the 
I think it's estimated 300,000 people in Mississippi um, go without due to the due, due to our failure to expand into the Mississippi CARES Act. You want Medicaid expanded. Uh, do you support, now I know that the hospital has a plan where they would pay the part that the state would pay. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would support that. Absolutely. Um, it, it, it sounds like a very fair way for us to press forward. And, uh, you know, Desiree, if I, can, if I can go one step further, I'd just like to say that for me, this isn't really a an issue of, of politics, red or blue politics. To me, it's really an issue of faith. And, um, you know, and so the faith leaders came together to just say that this is a moral and ethical thing um, for the Christians. Jesus was a healer. Jesus was a healer. And so we're, we're, we're following in the ministry that we've been called to. How do you feel about the fact that it has been politicized and that the legislature has consistently um, not passed bills that have sought to expand Medicaid in a state yeah. where there is poor access to health care and there are a lot of rural areas that don't have access at all? Yeah, yeah, De- Desiree. I think it's it's sad. It's really sad. I, I as the bishop of Mississippi, I I have churches in nearly every county in the state, and and there's 93 churches spread out throughout the state. So you can, by by my telling you that, you you know that I I drive to a lot of different areas, and I can see some of those depressed areas, and I can see some of the areas where I, I can only imagine how difficult it is for folks to to, to find healthcare. So when you when when you hear about the failure to accept um, this this expansion and the failure to um, uh, to do something to help those rural hospitals from having to close, uh, to build more jobs, to infuse more money into the economy. It's sad. It, it, it really, to me, it's very sad. Are you hearing from your parishioners about their own experiences with not being able to meet their health care costs? Yeah, in some cases. In some, uh, yeah, I serve a uh, a denomination that is uh, uh, predominantly white and uh, um, well, not just predominantly heavily white and uh, and typically um, upper middle class. And, and so our, our folks are generally in pretty good shape, but I, but I do hear stories from, from people, particularly those who are in the, in the healthcare industry who, who share just horrible, horror stories about people who have to be turned away and services that aren't able to be offered. So I understand that uh, clergy have signed a letter. What is the letter? That's correct. It's, it's a letter urging our, um, our state leadership um, to consider this, uh, to take this up and to consider this on, um, on uh, this Mississippi CARES Act on, on moral and ethical grounds, consider as part of their, from whatever religious tradition they come from, part of their spiritual grounding, and consider to be, be, be part of their, their, their commitment to the greater good. And I understand more than 300 have signed and you're asking for more. Do you really think that this will have any sway? You know, I, I do. I do believe it will have some sway. It was uh, it was the same group that came together back in June um, to ask the uh, our state leadership to consider uh, a change to the flag, um, to the state flag. And 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 that first meeting that we had on the steps of the uh, of the 
the Catholic cathedral here in Jackson uh, led to more meetings and led to more involvement from business leaders and, and other, uh, other leaders in politics and in other areas of life. And so it, it, it started something. It's, it started the ball rolling. And I, and I believe that this has the potential to do the same. And, um, and, and I believe it also, it puts a very important topic in front of us, um, as something other than just, like I said, red or blue, but something that, that is, uh, morally, moral and ethical and, and something that, that, that is, that's not Republican or Democrat. It's, it's people. Reverend Sage, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share? Actually, Desiree, there's, there's one thing I'd like to say. Um, since I've used this term so often about this isn't red or blue, um, D- Democrat or Republican, I would just like to ask everyone to consider um, that this is this is about all people, regardless of, of where we stand in, in, in the political arena. It's about all people. And, and this is an opportunity for us to do something. For all people, I, I, I believe that God calls us to, to look at each other as brothers and sisters. Well, I certainly thank you so much for your time in discussing this issue. We appreciate you. Well, thank you. And thanks for giving me a call. I appreciate it. Bishop Brian Sage of the Episcopal Diocese of Mississippi with our Desiree Frazier. Governor Tate Reeves has rejected any suggestion to expand Medicaid, most recently during a press briefing last week. The Republican supermajority in the legislature hasn't allowed Medicaid expansion bills to come out of committees, saying the state can't afford it. The stonewalling is similar to politics of neighboring Louisiana when the federal option became available through the Affordable Care Act. Republican Fred Mills is a senator in the Louisiana legislature. He recalls executive resistance in his state. You know, the biggest challenge was probably the governor. Governor Jindal at the time was uh, anti-Medicaid expansion, and uh, his popularity was was really strong in Louisiana. So there was a contingency of folks that were like, uh, never Medicaid expansion. And uh, it was it was tough to explain, at least in my area, to constituents that, you know, Medicaid expansion made sense for the working poor. It made sense for the guy that's making fifteen hour, dollars an hour that that needs health care. And I guess for me, what I could see was there was no plan B. Uh, so it, it was probably from the governor and probably uh, Republican constituents that uh, had a tough time for their conservative values to expand Medicaid. As it is in Mississippi, Mills, a Republican, said it was sometimes difficult to make the argument for expansion. But for him, the financial benefits were convincing. It was, it was tough at the time, around 2014, from my vantage point. It was tough to get into a debate on the finances and how well of a program I thought it was for people to get primary care, for somebody not to have their health care in an emergency room where the costs were just astronomical. So it seemed from a, a, cost fi- a cost and finance situation, it made sense for medical providers. It made sense for the whole system. On a federal level, it really made sense and it would save money for the state of Louisiana what the opposition said is, well, that all makes sense right now in the administration that's in, on the federal side, but what about in five years? What about in 10 years? Is it going to be sustainable? So the argument was always it makes sense now. It makes financial sense now. It makes good sense for primary care. It makes good sense to have our population healthier. But it was over, It was tough to overcome the political 
it's polarization and it was tough to say what's next because in Medicaid, who knows what's next in three years? It's, it's a tough environment to predict. Senator Fred Mills of Louisiana. The interview with Senator Mills comes courtesy of Jerry Mitchell of the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. Coming up, a coalition of health advocates pressed the legislature for a higher cigarette tax. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Partnership for a Healthy Mississippi is joining other health advocate groups in calling on the state Senate to amend House Bill 1439 to increase the cigarette tax by $1.50 per pack. Currently, the Mississippi Tax Freedom Act calls for a low 50 cents per pack cigarette tax increase. Mississippi's current tobacco tax is one of the lowest in the nation. And Sandra Shelson, executive director of the partnership, says the modest raise in the House's plan would still not not be able uh, would not still not bring the state up to the national average. It's been a long time since we have increased the tax in the state of Mississippi. It's been um, 2009. Uh, it, was, it went from 18 cents to 68 cents, and the national state average is a dollar 88 per pack. So at 68 cents, we're at the very low end. Um, and even with the, um, the, the current proposal to increase it by 50 cents, we would still be significantly below the national average. Um, so that's why it's not as uh, outrageous, perhaps, as some would say. It's because, um, you know, we're trying to stay current with what uh, other states are doing. Who are the other uh, organizations that are with you on this? Well, we have our trusty partners, uh, that long-time partners with the Lung Association, um, the Cancer Action Network for the American Cancer Society, uh, and the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, um, and then obviously we, the, you know, us, the Partnership for a Healthy Mississippi. Now, is the goal strictly to better the health of Mississippians, or is it a more directed goal? Well, for example, uh, this is it, it, this is science. This has been going on long enough, and the campaign for tobacco-free kids has uh, a calculator essentially. And so we know that this would generate a fourteen fourteen point five percent decrease in youth smoking. Um, that's been the primary goal of the, the work that the partnership has done for over 20 years is to try to help kids not start smoking. And one of the, the clear ways that um, it's been proven over and over again is to increase that price point. Uh, you know, kids have uh, limited disposable income, and they have to make choices as to how they're going to spend that money. And, you know, sometimes it comes down to uh, filling up their car with gas or buying 
you know, tobacco products. So uh, that's one of the reasons. It will also help reduce uh, those people who, okay, this is just it's getting to be too pricey of a habit and help them make that decision uh, for current smokers to quit. The state portion of cigarette tax, does it have to go or is it designated for smoking cessation? No, it it is not. It is designated just to go into the general fund. Um, it it would provide significant money. I mean, we know that a dollar fifty per pack increase would generate one hundred and forty two million dollars of new revenue in the first year alone. And uh, from a public health standpoint, as we have struggled. Uh, over the past year with the COVID, uh, any of the public health needs in the state would uh, greatly benefit from this new um, revenue. I'm wondering, House Bill 1439, as it stands now, with a proposed 50-cent tax increase, how probable is it that that would pass, let alone your proposal of an increase of $1.50? You know, our elected officials are always hesitant uh, to to use the word tax and propose taxes. But um, I know that there's a lot of talk right now uh, in the legislature about, um, you know, raising taxes like this perhaps and, and phasing out the income tax, state income tax. I'm not going to get into the weeds on all of that, but... Uh, you know, it, it's always a very hairy proposition. So if you think about it, the it took us over 20 years to get that the original 15, per, I mean 50 cent increase, 1985 to 2009. It took us that long, and now it's 2009 to 2021 to try to increase it again. Um, so we have known for a long time that. Uh, increasing the cigarette taxes is a difficult proposition, but uh, it's a very necessary one, and it's definitely worth the fight. Sandra Shelson is the executive director of the Partnership for a Healthy Mississippi. Sandra, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.